Well, good afternoon. If I haven't gotten a chance to meet you yet, my name is Aaron. Uh, I am one of the pastors and preachers here at the Trails, and it's great to be gathering again and opening up God's Word together as we are continuing uh, our study in the book of Exodus. In fact, if you have a Bible and you want to go ahead and open with me, um, we will be in Exodus chapter 7, about halfway through chapter 7. Uh, and, and then about halfway through chapter 8 today uh, is kind of where we will land in a few moments. And I'm excited to get into today's chapters, uh, not only because they are some of the most famous in the entire Bible, uh, but because they begin to reveal to us the very thing that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. They begin to reveal to us the very character and the nature of God as he's about to unleash a number of these signs, these miracles, these blows against Egypt. And every single one that he does will reveal something really important about who he is in opposition to the gods of the Egyptians. And we talked about this last week kind of extensively, so I'm not, I'm not going to belabor it all over again. But as we, as we walk through all of these miracles, that's exactly what we're going to see. We're going to see God, the only true and living God, showing up. And as he brings judgment upon Egypt, simultaneously he's going to be bringing judgment upon the gods of Egypt. So so thus the nation will begin to crumble (laughs) from this moment forward. They will just crumble bit by bit. And as that happens, the gods of the Egyptians will also crumble bit by bit. So that as we get to the end of our section for today, we have these sorcerer magicians, these priests of all these foreign gods will look at the very works of God and declare, this is the finger of God. We can't do this anymore. And they're going to tap out. And then for for the rest of these mighty signs that we'll see over the next two weeks, uh, they will be unable to compete with the God of Israel. That is the point over and over again. There is no one like the Lord. So uh, I'm excited to be walking through. Also, um, growing up, uh, I remember flipping uh, on, on TV really late at night, old black and white Charlton Heston, let my people go. That's kind of this moment. Or some of you uh, that are also my tribe, your mid-30s-ish, remember Disney's uh, Prince of Egypt. It's not completely theologically accurate, but it was fun. Uh, or more, more recently, Exodus, Gods and Kings. So, so even if you're brand new to Christianity, you're like, man, I don't know anything that's in this book. You do know the things that we're walking through today. Uh, if nothing other than just seeing Christian Bale. You know what I mean? So who will always be Batman in my mind, but that's a different... That's a different story. Uh, but I'm, I'm, excited to, I'm excited to dive in. And as we're getting started today, uh, kind of to put us in the right headspace to understand everything that we're going to be studying, I just want to take a minute to help us understand the Egyptians and the world that they live in, kind of the, the waters that they are swimming in, because their world is strikingly different than the world that we live in today in our modern, Western, Canadian sort of world. For example, when something happens in your life, when a problem comes up, like we get a flat tire or, uh, or, or we, get, we get stuck in the snow somewhere or if we get sick or various other kind of things like that, when problems happen in our world, our first thought probably is not, have I offended the gods in some way? Right? Like the last time that you got a flu, you probably didn't say, what God did I offend? And why is this happening to me? And how can I placate these gods? Right? That, that, that probably wasn't a thought that even crossed your mind. Right? You're probably just like, oh, it's going to take two or three days. I'm going to have some, some Advil, some Tylenol, some NyQuil, some something. I'm going to get through this and then it's going to be fine. Right? But in the world that the Egyptians walk through, their immediate question is not that. Immediately, what they want to know is, why is this happening to me? And it's not just kind of this logical progression of the way that we would view things. Instead, they are looking at the spiritual realities as well that they're walking through, assuming that they have offended some God somewhere, and that God is getting back at them. Or maybe somebody has cursed them, or vexed them, or given them the stink eye, or, or various other things that we see in cultures all around the world. And so as they walk through these exact same scenarios where the crops fail, or where they can't get pregnant, or when they don't get that promotion at work, their immediate response is, I must have offended the gods somehow. How do I appease them? So then they'll find out which god that is, the fertility god or the job promotion god. I don't know if that's a god or not. Or the, or the something other god. And they'll say, how do I make sacrifices in order that I can get the thing that I want? It's kind of like the gods of Egypt are like this huge divine vending machine. And if you put in the right things and hit E4, you'll get out exactly what you wanted from the vending machine, right? 
And so an Egyptian, what, what, as they're walking through all of these unfortunate events and sicknesses or anything terrible, they, they don't just see naturalistic causes, but supernatural ones. So an Egyptian would ask, why did this happen to me? What God did I offend? Who has cursed me? And these are the normative questions they would walk through as a nation. Thus, when we see the Egyptians, we need to remember they are incredibly religious, but also superstitious people. Right? Everything around you is a God. At any moment, you could potentially violate a God. You could step on something that you didn't even know was buried there. You could get someone to curse you out of the middle of nowhere. You're just walking through a superstore. Like, you have no idea why these bad things are happening to you. And everything around them is a God or a deity or a spirit of some sort that needs to be placated in order for you to have blessing in your life. So the Nile River that we'll talk about in a moment was a god that brought life and fish and water so the Egyptians could eat and have crops. And there are gods all the way throughout this process. There's the god of the fish, there's the god of the soil, there's the god of the rain, there's the god of the wind. Also within Egypt, we know there's the god of the sun, right? Ra, the sun god who was worshipped. There's also various bugs and creatures that were either blessings or curses. And some of them were even gods. And so you had a piece all of these gods. And in this society, everyone is constantly worrying, am I doing enough? Right? And if not, you know it because something bad happens to you. Right? So, so, so constantly you're worried, you're freaked out, you're insecure, you're neurotic. Have I done something wrong today? This is a constant worry that you have all the time in the back of your mind. But it's also important in this conversation that we remember as Western people that these aren't just the affairs of some Egyptian peoples of antiquity. You know what I mean? This exact same thing goes on in Aboriginal spiritualities all around us all like today. This is the exact same thing we see there. Not only that, this is the exact same thing that we see in the majority world. Really, outside of Christendom, Christianity. This is the majority thought that we have. In China, for example, to offend your ancestors and not give them proper respect could bring harm and shame onto your family along with various curses. In Hinduism, there are billions of gods, both local deities and then much more powerful ones that you need to appease for every facet of your everyday life, which also makes traveling really difficult if you're a Hindu because you don't know what local deities are there. And so if you travel somewhere, you're freaked out all the time because you don't know what's there, right? Like you have no idea. So you're constantly worried if you're actually a Hindu. And so you need to make constant sacrifices so that things will go well for you. And all across various parts of Africa, we see the same thing. As tribal deities need to be appeased and spirits need to be feared and sacrificed to. Not only that, but in northern Africa, the Maghreb, the Muslim-dominated area, that would say, oh yeah, we're Muslim. But if something bad happens to them, if they're infertile, their crops don't come through, who do they go to? They're shaman, they're priests. They, they do not go to an imam. They don't go to the mosque. No, they go to their tribal deities and they worship there. This is also prevalent all across Mexico and Latin America, as I mentioned a, minute, a moment ago with the stink eye, which we kind of might laugh at. But this is a real thing. This is a terrifying belief that someone can curse you or your baby simply by looking at you the wrong way. So there's this terrifying thought walking through lots of Latin America, that exact same thought. I was even talking with Nino and Leticia over Christmas break about Brazil and how this activity still goes on there. Wilton and Charles would be like, yes, it does. Uh, with people, and I'm not lying I'm not lying. <clears throat> Filling their bathtubs with popped popcorn and having a popcorn bath so as to cleanse yourself from evil spirits. I, I don't know why popcorn. I don't know why it's popped. I've never thought about popping and filling it in, the, uh, in a bathtub and diving in, but uh, apparently this is a thing. Not only that, but also in Brazil, there are certain corners, street corners that are known where people go and they sacrifice animals. Or they leave gifts of uh, hard alcohol or other gifts as a means to appease the local deities and gods. Friends, this is all over our world today. This belief that gods, the gods are out there to get you. And what you need to do is strive to appease them with everything that you can possibly muster and do. You need to guarantee blessing. You need to hedge your bets. And so it's not for no reason that these people make sacrifices either. This isn't something that we just look at and laugh at and be like, those people are dumb. No, what, what we see and what we talked about last week, it's not as if these spirits have no power at all, right? 
It's not as if these people are being dumb by bringing these sacrifices to false gods. Now, even in last week's sermon, remember we saw that God allowed these magicians to turn their staffs into snakes and slither on the ground. There's actual power there. Now, their staffs got eaten by the staff of Aaron, so uh, we know whose power is greater. But there's still power there. There's certain things that God allows them to do. But as we will see in these upcoming chapters, the power of these sorcerers, of these magicians, the power of the demons of this world is a limited power. It's not an exhaustive power. Instead, they are like junkyard dogs who are chained to the will of God. And God says, you can go here and no further. And everything they do is governed by the will, the plans, and the purposes of God. As they are only able to do exactly what God has ordained and allowed them to do. Which, as a Christian, brings you great comfort and joy. Knowing that there's not all kinds of deities out there that are coming to get you. And God's like, I can't do anything, man. Suck it up. No. God's with us. He's for us. And he is the one who's allowing all these things to happen. So, simply by way of introduction... The Egyptian world is drastically different from the one that most of us come from. When bad things happen, they wonder what gods they have offended, and they are terrified. And I mean they are terrified that they might come under the wrath of some unknown god. Thus, as we're about to see in the chapters that we're going to walk through, the only true and living god is going to enter into the scene. He's going to bring catastrophic judgments on the nation of Egypt. And as he does so, he's going to reveal simultaneously that the gods that they worship are impotent. They have no power. He's going to disrobe them and show that they are actually worthless demons who do not deserve your fear and they do not deserve your sacrifices. They are weak. They're petty little things. And God is going to just tick them off one by one, dismantling the whole system and showing them that all these gods are worthless and pointless, that he is the only true and living God, and he is the only one worthy of your affection. So that's intro enough. Let's pray, and then we'll dive in. So let's pray. So Father, we, we do pray as we walk into your word this week, we pray that, that as we continue to grow in our knowledge of you, that you would graciously meet with us. God, we freely admit that we are too quick to forget your power and might as we walk through our days. Even this week, how much our conversations have demonstrated our fear of the future. This week, how how our conversations have demonstrated our fear of our government's overreach or Bill C-4 and its impact on striving to live our lives in light of your word. And so, God, before we dive in, we firstly need to repent. We repent of fearing these things more than you. We we repent of fearing man more than fearing you. We repent of caring more about what others say than what you clearly say in your word. God, help us to see your character and nature today. And let us walk in the fear of you. Let us see your character and nature and power. And may we fear you alone and trust upon you alone. God, for your glory and name's sake, may we grow today in our fear and trust of you. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So to let us know where we're headed in the upcoming weeks, this is going to be our rhythm. So today we're going to study the very first three plagues. I hate that word. It's not used in the Bible. They're called signs and wonders, but we call them plagues. I don't know why. Anyway, the first three of those we're going to talk about that God performs in judgment of Israel. So we're going to talk about the first three. Next week, we're going to talk about the next three. The next week, we're going to talk about the next three. And then we're going to talk about the tenth one. So that's where we're going. Three, 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 boom, ten. All right? And as we do so, and as we see that final judgment of God, we're going to see that God is going to kill all of the firstborn in Egypt. Anyone whose home is not covered by the blood of the lamb. And from that moment on, what we will then see is Pharaoh will kick Israel out of Egypt. God will have liberated his people and they will have plundered their enemies exactly as Genesis chapter 15 verses 13 to 15 explains that he would do all along. So for the next four weeks, that's where we're going. We're going to examine those major 10 signs and explore what they tell us about who God is and what he does in his judgment against the nations. That we might, as a result of our time, come to know God better. And each of these signs that we're going to talk about, all 10 of them, this is going to be their rhythm. Every single one of them will start with these words. They will start with this phrase, Thus says the Lord, or the Lord said to Moses, and then they will all end with an emphasis on Pharaoh's heart being hardened. 
I don't know if you've ever noticed that. If you've ever read through all these things, this is the pattern over and over and over again. But there's more structure than just this. In fact, as we were uh, talking about this as pastors, I was like, man, I, I want to give this in a way that it's easily memorable, memorizable, knowable, that you can walk away and be like, I know about the plagues. Uh, and so as we're walking through the plagues, this is not something new with us. In fact, uh, theologians and scholars for over a thousand years have pointed this out about the plagues themselves. So nothing new, uh, very, very old. But in the plagues themselves, we see three sections of three. That's why we kind of have split it up into three sections of three. And throughout all of these three groups of threes, this is what they look like. The first in the set is going to begin with a warning, and it's given to Pharaoh early in the morning on the banks of the Nile River. So this will be uh, plague number one, four, and seven. They all follow that exact same pattern. The second one in each subset is going to be foretold to Pharaoh typically in his palace, and there is always a warning given to them. It's, it has this tone of, if you refuse to let them go, this is what's going to happen to you. So that's plagues three, six, and, or two, five, and eight. And then the third in each section comes with no warning at all. Just bam, it happens. And everyone is like, whoa, that was crazy. Uh, and, and so that, that's the, the general pattern of, of how all of these things go down. And there will be also a progression from sign to sign to sign that as the signs increase, they will also increase in intensity and they will bring greater anguish on the Egyptians, all the while demonstrating that the Lord alone is God and their gods as the Egyptians are pointless, fruitless, worthless demons who don't deserve their worship. So let's dive in and let's talk about this first miracle. All right, Exodus chapter 7, verses 14 to 25. Also, um, I'm not going to be reading through every jot and tittle of uh, 7, 14 through 8 uh, to 19, but I am going to read swaths of it. I don't have it all on the screen for you. Is that okay? You have your Bible. You're making notes anyway. Good. All right. So, uh, so Exodus chapter 7, verse 14 to 25. And here's where we see that this uh, the sign of the water turning into blood. So look at me in verse 14, and it is going to begin our pattern. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile will die and the Nile will stink. And the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. We'll stop right there. Now, as I mentioned in our introduction, the Egyptians worshipped everything. They worshipped a large host of gods that had duties over all of life. And what we know about the history of the Egyptians is that they worshipped the Nile River. There are even songs that are written about the Nile River. I read a couple of them this week. They're fascinating. All of these songs, they praise the river Nile for keeping Egypt alive. And, and they are songs of fertility and songs of blessing and songs of happiness. And on a very practical level, the Egyptians were really dependent upon the Nile River to have drinking water and to irrigate their crops. So it's no wonder, right? Like if you, even if you look at Egypt today, the Nile River runs straight and there's cities all along it. That's not for no reason, right? The same way that we have two, two rivers that come together and we have Winnipeg, muddy waters, Right? The same reason of why we even are here is because of the way that water and flooding and all those kind of things bring life and make the soil really habitable. Right? And so in the exact same way, this is the Nile, this is Egypt in this time. So on a practical level, they were really dependent on the Nile for drinking water and irrigating crops and all these things. Thus, if God wanted to make a point that he is the creator of every living thing and simultaneously he wanted to let his people go, touching these waters not only causes a national catastrophe, a lack of water, a lack of irrigation, but it also strikes the very notion, the very heart that the Nile River is a God to be worshipped. But it wasn't just the God of the Nile River that God has in mind here. No, as John MacArthur points out, there are various other gods that are impacted by this judgment of God, and they are demonstrated as powerless against God. In fact, there is, n- I don't know how to say that. I'm going to say numb. I'm gonna, that's what I'm going to say. Numb, the guardian of the Nile River. 
And so as, as God will in a moment hit the Nile and there will be kilometer after kilometer of the river being turned into blood for days, this God will be shown to be impotent. There was also a God called Happy who was the spirit of the Nile. They called him the dynamic essence of the Nile. And then there was the greatest of the Egyptian gods, one of the greatest. His name was Osiris. And Osiris was known as the god of the underworld. He ruled the deities. Not only that, but Osiris, it is said, had for his bloodstream the Nile River. Thus, as God strikes it, he's going to make Osiris bleed to death. Ha! That's pretty cool. Not only that, but in God's judgment, the fish also die, right? The place stunk like only dead piles of dead, stinky, nasty fish could possibly smell. You know, which, which is a condemnation of one of their other gods, the god Neith, who's a warlike god and sometimes a goddess who is supposed to take care of the largest fish in the Nile River to protect them. Not only that, but there was also Hathor, another god, who had charge of the rest of the fish in the Nile River. Thus, in one fell swoop, God turns the river to blood, kills Osiris, and all of these fish die. Not a single one of them survives. And there is this terrible stench in the air that you just can't get away from. You can't burn enough incense or diffuse enough essential oils for this nasty smell to go away. It's everywhere. It's pervasive. It's disgusting. And in thinking about this terrible stench that would be in the air, we remember, don't we, Exodus chapter 5. Do you remember Exodus chapter 5? Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh, as a result, makes the work harder for the people. And what do the leaders of the Israelites say to Moses and Aaron? You have made us a stench in the nostrils of Pharaoh. God says, you want to see a stench? Here's a stench for you, a disgusting one. Like a a really disgusting nastiness. Man, it's terrible. Not only that, but this reminded me of one of the songs that I came across. Uh, John MacArthur, again, he pointed out this worship song of the Nile River. It went like this. It said, O Nile, bringer of food, rich in provision, creator of all good, Lord of majesty, sweet fragrance. (laughs) I just imagine the Lord going... That's not a sweet fragrance anymore, man. Nor is it life. It's death. It's just terrible, isn't it? It, makes this, it doesn't make this sweet fragrance anymore. And you can imagine the horror of this situation, right? I mean, we have the Red River that it, it looks like it's red from time to time because of sediment. But imagine if the Red River was turned blood red and everything in it died. That is how disgusting this would have been. Instead of worshiping God for all of these things, as Ninos is, uh, as Luke read for us at the very beginning uh, of our time together, these Egyptians had exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and creeping things, and God gave them up to the lust of the impurity of their hearts because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and started serving the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And so God comes upon these Egyptians and their false gods in judgment, dismembering them and demonstrating that he alone is God. And if you want to look at me at verse 20, verse 20 explains that Moses and Aaron did exactly as the Lord commanded. We read that last week too. Remember we talked about how sweet that is? This 83-year-old and this 80-year-old man are doing exactly what God told them to do. And here they are again doing exactly what God said. They came and they met Pharaoh and the staff was lifted and the Nile was struck and the water in the Nile turned to blood. And the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank so the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. And there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. What a nasty sentence. Ah, if you're here with your mom and dad, that would be a good time to go, that's gross. Blood everywhere. Not only that, but like blood in your cisterns, in your pools. Like if you have a swimming pool at your house, there's blood there. If you have a pond, there's blood there. If you have a Brita water filter inside of your refrigerator at home, blood there. If you've got a swell water bottle of coffee with you, blood in there. Blood everywhere. Like it was disgusting. No matter where you went, you opened up your water and you're like, I have fresh water here though. Mm-mm. It's gross. It's just disgusting. Verse 19 says this extended to their rivers, their canals, their ponds, their pools of water. So they became blood. And there was blood throughout all the land, even vessels of wood and vessels of stone, which means all the way, everywhere. It touched everything. The power of God to turn all of their drinkable water into blood is disgusting and shows his power over everything. One of the beautiful things that we saw 
as we began to study the book of Exodus. Remember the book of Exodus begins with the word and? Do you remember that in our study? And so Exodus is, is piggybacking on everything that we learned in the book of Genesis. Now, you remember at the very beginning of the book of Genesis, God creates everything that exists out of nothing by speaking it. God brings three days of forming things and three days of filling things and everything is good and good and good and good and very good. It's all perfect. God orders everything. And then what we see here is God disordering all these things. We see kind of a decreation, localized, a decreation. Everything that was tightly wound and well-ordered by God is now coming undone. And into this situation, verse 22, Pharaoh calls together his sorcerer priests. And we read that they are able to do what they did last week. In fact, we read by their secret arts, they were able to do the same Now, you might be wondering, well, how do they find water? How do they find water somewhere that wasn't turned into blood? If you look a little bit further down, you'll see that God, in his great kindness, didn't turn the groundwater completely into blood. So that the Egyptians, because they would have died. And you have no water anymore, you're just going to die. And so God actually made it to where the groundwater, they could dig down in other places and actually get some fresh water. But if you think about how silly this is, these sorcerer priests went and found some of the only drinkable water they could possibly find. And they bring it up and they say, look, we can do the same thing. They add to the blood. There's just more blood. Right? They, don't, they don't say, don't worry, we can reverse this whole thing. Watch, Pharaoh. It's all better. No, they can't do anything. They simply add to the very judgment of God and more blood is created. Like if I'm Pharaoh, I'm looking at that saying, great, can you do the opposite? Like this, I don't need this. I want to take a bath later. I need some water. Right? I, I, don't, I don't want this. And it's crazy, isn't it? They just make everything more terrible by their demonic powers. Which is kind of funny. God, I imagine, saw that and kind of chuckled a little bit. It's like, hmm, look at that. And Pharaoh, upon seeing this, though, he, he, he didn't see it and, and think of anything other than his heart becoming hard. And he grew in his unwillingness to listen and obey. He trusted the science, believed his experts. <laughs> and they could do what, the, what God could do and say, oh, I trust you. I'm in. In verse 23, I think is one of the most heartbreaking verses. This is what it says. It says, Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. Oh, man. Isn't that amazing? He sees this mighty, pervasive miracle of God where God destroys these massive gods of Egyptian culture and life. He doesn't even take it to heart. This is how hard-hearted he is towards the things of God. This is how stubborn he is. Seeing everything that the Lord just did and walking away and going throughout his day as if nothing happened at all. And seven days pass. Now, we don't know if it was just blood for seven days. Eventually, though, I think at some point, God probably said, all right, enough blood, and then the Nile returned back to water. When I told that, at some point, imagine that happened. And then we get to the second sign. Look with me at Exodus chapter 8, verses 1 to 15. We have the second sign, which is the sign of frogs. And we see this refrain at the very beginning. Read with me verses 1 to 4. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, right, that's our sign. We're We're in a new sign. The Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs. They'll come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and on your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs, this is so disgusting. The frogs shall come upon you and your people and on all your servants. Now, this would be absolutely disgusting, wouldn't it? Like you just went from everything that had life turned to blood and died and it was disgusting. The smell was terrible. And now you've got frogs everywhere. Right? And even if you like frogs, if you think frogs are cool, like I remember this past summer we were at, we were at Matt's house and he had a pond and my kids would love to just grab all the frogs. And that, that's fun for a moment. You know what I mean? You go to go to the bathroom and you can't walk anywhere because there's frogs everywhere on the ground. And you open up your oven to try to get some bread and there's fr- it's just frogs fall out. And then you, you have frogs in your hair. You have, you have frogs on your bed. 
You have frogs everywhere. That gets really disgusting very quickly. You know what I mean? They're slimy. They're gross. They're disgusting. They're smelly. You don't know what kind of viruses or other disgusting things they're carrying with them. I mean, they just came out of this, this Nile River, which had just been blood. Right? So, so I don't know what they're bringing into your house and onto your couch and onto your bed and all around your kids, but it's not good. Right? Like, this is disgusting. It's everywhere. But you might wonder, well, why frogs? Why frogs? That seems like a weird choice. You know, you're like, I might choose something up. Puppies. Puppies everywhere. Uh, right? so, I don't know. What would you choose? I don't know. In Egypt, as in many places all around the world, frogs are, as an agrarian society, frogs are a good thing. Like rain is a good thing. No, country music, sorry. Uh, you people, you need to listen to more country music. Frogs are, frogs are a good thing. It means you have enough water to sustain yourself in a sustained life. Thus, even in croaking, as you're going to bed at night, you're, the windows, they don't have windows, but it, you know, it, they have a cutout. Uh, as they're, they're listening, they hear frogs, and they know there is a blessing going on in their fields and in their waters. Right? Frogs are a sign that there's uh, an abundance of water and the, God is, or the gods are, are bringing water and thus you're able to water your crops. You're able to have growth and provision. Things are good. Frogs are a good sign. And because Egypt was such an agrarian society, they actually deified frogs. They worshipped them. They were one of those creatures that they worshipped. They even had a goddess by the name of Hecht. And she was the wife of Num, who we learned about a moment ago. And she was a symbol of fertility and resurrection. And so if you wanted to get pregnant, you would worship and make sacrifices to Hecht, praying that she would bless you so that you could have babies, which makes sense. I mean, frogs, when they have babies, their babies are everywhere, right? And so in the same way, she's this goddess of fertility. As one pastor explained as well, she's one of the eight primeval gods, one of the key gods. And you can tell by this photo how much they love frogs. Look at homegirl's face. Her whole head is a frog. This is how much they loved frogs. And she wasn't the only one. In fact, a few of the other main Egyptian deities also had frog heads. And so needless to say, frogs were a big deal. They were like a sacred animal, like cows are to Hindus, so the frogs are to Egyptians. In fact, they were such a symbol of blessing and fertility that if you accidentally killed one, you violated the gods. Like, it was a big deal. Now, can you imagine frogs are everywhere, and even to get out of your bed and walk to the bathroom, you're going to step on one and kill it? Can you imagine how your soul would just be plagued with fear and insecurity because you're constantly killing these, bu- these huge frogs everywhere? And you're like, I'm sorry, I don't know, I don't know what to do. Just frogs everywhere. So Aaron stretched out his hand, all those frogs come. The symbol of blessing actually becomes God's judgment on them. Isn't that fascinating? What they saw as a blessing became part of God's judgment upon them. And Pharaoh again calls his sorcerer priests, and we see that they are able to do by this, their same secret arts to have frogs come up on the limb. Now, yet again, yet again, they are adding to the judgment, right? They're not making the frogs go away. There's just more of them. Again, why? Why? If I'm Pharaoh, I'm like, no, 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 guys. That's not what I want. Make them go away. But they cannot. They can only add to the noise. They only add to the problem, making it bigger. And then something really interesting happens. In verse 8, with the blood, Pharaoh didn't do this. But in verse 8, Pharaoh calls in Moses and Aaron. And this is what he says to them in verse 8 of chapter 8. Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go, sacrifice to the Lord. This is how frustrated homeboy is with the blood and then with the frogs. He's like, just get out of here. Take this stuff away. See, he turns the only people that he believes are able to get these frogs to go away. But isn't it interesting it's not the sorcerers? We don't see that he goes to the sorcerers and asks them to take the frogs away. No, he goes here to Moses and Aaron and asks them to take them away. Pharaoh, in fact, tells them to plead with the Lord. Remember Exodus 5? Pharaoh says he doesn't know the Lord. That's why all this is happening. He says, I don't know the Lord. Who is the Lord? No, you can't go. Here, he says, plead with him, please. I don't know who he is, but he's more powerful than any of our gods. Please, go plead with him. Take this away from us. It's too much. Then Moses asks when Pharaoh would like the frogs to be cut away from them. And Pharaoh didn't say today. He says tomorrow. I would have said today, right now. Moses said, be as as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. 
That is one of the key verses of this section. The frogs will go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They will only be left in the Nile River. So verse 12, Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses and cried out to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. That's an interesting turn of phrase, isn't it? Up to this point, Moses and Aaron are the only ones who did according to the word that God told them to do. But now God also, as Moses and Aaron pray, pleading with him, the Lord responds to his people. Isn't it good to know that the Lord responds to his people? That was just a side note. Uh, That was for free. But it's good to know, isn't it? And so the frogs died out in the houses and the courtyards and the fields. Dead frogs everywhere. Again, gross. Dead frogs. I don't like touching a dead anything. And so what they had to do, though, is they had to get all these dead frogs out of everywhere, out of their ovens and out of their beds, out of their pools, out of their trampolines. They had to pile them up in large piles everywhere because they didn't know what to do with them. So now, again, you have stinky piles of dead frog flesh rotting in the Egyptian sun. That's disgusting. And yet again, there's this terrible stench that fills everyone's nostrils. But it's also interesting, the last time that we saw this kind of swarming vocabulary was actually earlier in the book of Exodus. At the beginning of Exodus, who's swarming and filling the land? The Israelites. That's why Pharaoh is so terrified. And now the Lord swarms his whole land with judgment. All these frogs. It's a beautiful thing to think about. And then verse 15, though, it explains that when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. That's an important phrase. Remember we talked about this last week. As the Lord had said. All of this is unfolding exactly as God has said that it would. God, as the first cause, is hardening Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh, as the secondary cause, is hardening his heart. All because God has first hardened his heart. So God wants us to remember, all the way as we walk through this, it is not just that Pharaoh is being dumb. No, all this is unfolding exactly as God has ordained that it would so that God would be glorified as Pharaoh is lifted up and made a demonstration of and as God's judgment comes upon Pharaoh and against all of these false gods of the Egyptians. Which then brings us to verses 16 to 19. The third sign, gnats. Then the Lord said to Moses, verse 16, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand and just strike the dust of the earth. And it's here that we're reminded of a time before this as God in the creation of Adam took the very dust of the ground. Do you remember Genesis chapter two? Took the dust of the ground and he formed Adam, breathed life into him. But here now the dust of the earth is struck. And as a result of that, all these gnats go flying everywhere. Thus God takes the dust of the earth not to create, but to bring disorder. It's decreation. And he breathes out this multitude of gnats. And the word gnats isn't a great translation for what's happening here. Right? You think about gnats and that those are those like little black flies that as you're like in summer, you're kind of like, oh, get out of my way. That is not what we have here, actually. What we have here is a terrible biting bug that embeds deeply into you and just sucks the life out of you. It's like lice or like I, <clears throat> I often refer to like black flies. Just being swarmed with black flies and lice and mosquitoes, our provincial bird. You know, like, like what, a, what a terrible thing that this would be. So there's, there's these gnats just everywhere, and they're just constantly biting the Egyptians. And they would have been just terribly exasperated by this. Just terribly exasperated. And the priests at this time as well, they had this rule where if you had something like lice or some other kind of infectious disease that you could not go and worship. In fact, the priest, as one commentator let me know, that the priests at the time were so careful against infectious diseases or bugs or lice of any kind that every priest would shave his entire body every three days. And he would only wear linen clothing so that, so that you could easily find something if anything gets on you. That's how, that's how persnickety and how careful all these priests were about getting anything like this onto them. Now, can you imagine these priests who were that careful to ensure that nothing gets on them? Now they have lice all over them. But not only them, all of Egypt. Do you know what would happen to the worship of all of the gods of Egypt if nobody could go worship? They would be incredibly angry. And God is showing in a moment as he brings the worship of these false gods to a screeching halt. There is no one like me. 
He literally makes their worship stop. That's how powerful he is. Huh. Isn't that wild? That's crazy. So in this judgment, God is not simply aiming at a deity. He hits all of the gods of the Egyptians. He brings all of their worship to the screeching halt by infecting every man and every beast. So you can't even bring a sacrifice. Even if you were to somehow get it all off of you, what animal are you going to bring a sacrifice? You can't find one. (laughs) They're everywhere. And yet again, like clockwork, the magicians are called in by Pharaoh. We read in verse 18, the magicians try by their secret arts to produce these biting bugs. But, and here's the first time that we see this in our text, they could not. They can't produce these biting bugs. Thus, for the first time in our storyline, the magicians cannot perform by their secret arts what only God is able to do through Moses and Aaron. And at this moment right here, it lets us know that we've known all along. Namely, as Matthew Henry says, God has the devil on a chain and limits him both as deceiver and destroyer. And the devil's agents, when God permitted them, could do great things. But when God lays an embargo on them, though but with his little finger, they could do nothing. Ha, that's great. Thus the magicians show that they had no power against Moses except what was allowed to them by the God of heaven. And it's here where they explain that the reason why they cannot do this is because this is the very finger of God. Huh. What a pronouncement by these pagan sorcerer priests who do not worship God and do not love God. They can still see this and say, we can't do this. This must be God. I can't, we can't do this. It's a fascinating thing, isn't it? And yet, as we see in the next verse, Pharaoh doesn't agree. It says, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He would not listen to them. As the Lord had said. The Lord is not done with Pharaoh. The Lord is not done extolling his greatness and making himself known. And he's not done dismantling the gods of the Egyptians. As we'll see next week, and the week after, and the week after, and the week after, there is no one like the Lord. So our constant drum, we're going to be beating over and over and over again. There's no one like him. But isn't it interesting here that he would not listen to them, his own sorcerers? Instead, his heart was hardened. And Romans 9 explains that what we're seeing through these events is that Pharaoh is being raised up for this very purpose. His heart is being hardened so that God might show his power in and through Pharaoh. And that God's name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Right, So that when we get to the book of Joshua and we see them beginning to take the land, the nations of the land of Canaan are petrified. They are afraid because they have heard what the Lord did in Egypt and they are scared to death. They know that there is no one like the Lord. And God divinely ordains all of this, that Egypt may know there's no one like the Lord, that Pharaoh may know that there is no one like the Lord, that Israel, as she is liberated and brought into the promised land, that she would not worship false, worthless gods because they have no power to save them, though they will constantly struggle with that over and over and over again. They'll constantly be removed, reminded back to this moment in time. Of like, why are you doing this? These gods have no power. And then by extension, it's so that you and I may come to know this God as well. It's interesting, as we look at answering the who is God, consider these things together. We know that he is stronger than the river gods that the Egyptians believed would protect their water and their fish. He's stronger than the frog gods who promised life and fertility, but who cannot provide what they promise. Rather, what do we see in the Bible? Who is it that opens the womb and allows for babies to be born as he knits them together in their mother's womb? The Lord. It's no one else other than him. So that as his judgment comes upon these stinky frog gods, all that is left to them is this, this piled high corpses that are stinking to the high heavens. And he is the God who is sovereign over the biting insects and who can, in, in a moment, bring the pointless rituals and sacrifices to a screeching halt. He is sovereign over the waters. He's sovereign over the frogs. He's sovereign over the biting bugs. And he demonstrates that he is the Lord of all creation. Creation bends to accomplish all of his purposes and plans that he is sovereign over everything. Thus, the gods of the Egyptians are impotent. 
And so they suffer the consequences of their sin. Not only that, but he is also the God who enters in and comes to us when we are those who are just like Pharaoh and deserve nothing but his judgment as well. So I think the fascinating thing when reading through the story of Pharaoh, we talked about this last week, how often we are not those who look at Pharaoh and say, that's me. And yet we should. For all of us, from birth and by nature, are those who rebel against God. Not only do we rebel against God, we harden our hearts against him. We see his word clearly, and we look at it and say, well, did God really say that? I don't think so. Well, you won't die if you rebel against God. Don't trust his judgments. And all that is because we want to be like God, deciding for ourselves what is good and what is evil. It's tempting, isn't it, in times like this to look at something like Bill C4 and be like, the problem is out there with those people. And yet the Bible constantly says, no, 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 no. The problem is deep in here, man. The problem is deep in here. The the problem is you and I. See, see, because we, we may not we may not be those who worship the God of the rocks and the gods of, of the winds or the gods of the not letting your tire get popped. We may not be those people, but, but we, we do think that we are pretty godlike, don't we? If everyone thought like we did and acted like we did, everything would be great. We have this great, great feeling about ourselves that we're pretty awesome. Friends, and... So when we read stories like this, it's easy for us to look at Moses and Aaron and say, we're kind of like them. You know, we talked about last week, first and foremost, we should look at this and say, no, 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 we are not like them at all. Instead, we are like the Egyptians who give our lives in pointless worship to things that are good things that become God things, and we give our life to worship them. We worship our education. We worship our gender. We worship our gender ideologies. We worship how we view about COVID or C4. We worship how we think worship ought to be done. We, we worship about how we think things should be right and things should be wrong. And the thing that we deserve because of that is God's unending judgment. God says the wages of our sin is death. Thus, as the Nile River turned to blood, what we should have happened, the wages of our sin is that our blood ought to be poured out. That we ought to be those whose, whose blood runs as a result of our rebellion against God. Not only that, but we also deserve all the worship of our silly little things in life to just cease. And we deserve abiding judgment of God that lasts forever and ever and ever with no respite. But praise be to God that he's not left you and I like that. No, God the Son, Jesus, came at the perfect time, laying humanity alongside of his divinity, and he stepped into time to reveal to us perfectly God the Father. And he lived the life we should have lived, a life of perfect obedience, a life never rebelling against the words of God or the judgments of God. And then he who knew no sin became sin. The Lord of life took upon himself the pain and the sting of death. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And he was sent outside of the camp to bear the biting punishment of the wrath of God that we deserve to pay. And he suffered and died. And three days later, rose from the dead. That you and I, who deserve to face God's unending judgment forever and ever, can instead be welcomed in as his sons and daughters by faith in Jesus alone. By grace alone, through Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And thus, as we see this story, we are reminded of this greater story that is going on. We, we see what's going on. We understand the, these things that are happening. But as we do so, we should read so rightly, understanding the judgment that we deserve because we are guilty sinners just like these Egyptians. We deserve to see everything around us crumble. This is what we deserve and what we earn. And yet, praise be to God that he instead shows us grace and kindness when he doesn't need to. He doesn't need to. But he does. Praise be to God that he does. Because apart from his grace and kindness through Jesus, all that we can expect is way worse than this. And yet now, because of our faith in Christ, we who were once declared God's enemies are now his sons and daughters by grace and through faith. So, As we read these stories, remember first and foremost that we are those who need desperately God's kindness and grace. And the problem isn't out there. The problem is deep in here. 
And yet God has made a way for you and I who deserve judgment to be declared innocent. And isn't it also good to know that we need not live our lives in the constant fear of whether or not we have done enough to please God? Can you imagine living your whole life wondering, have I done enough to please him? Could I do enough to please him? Maybe maybe God needs me to give more money to him. Maybe he needs me to go be a missionary for him. Maybe he needs me to do this for him or that for him or that for him or whatever. And God looks at you and says, what do I need you to help me do? Nothing. Nothing. For our relationship with God is not strengthened by our faithfulness, nor is it deteriorated by our faithlessness. This is the beauty of the gospel, is it? Our relationship with God isn't dependent on how strongly we are grabbing on to him and saying, I will be faithful to you. No, it's how strongly our God is holding on to us and saying, you are faithless and I will carry you through. Huh. Thus, you need not worry if your relationship with God, you're stumbling in various things. Now, do we want to walk in holiness? Yes and amen. Friends, do we need to be constantly worried that, that the reason why you popped a tire last night is... Is because maybe you didn't pray enough that day. God is getting you. Gotcha. There's great joy in knowing that God through Christ is pleased with you. That now by faith in Jesus, he sees you through the lenses of Christ. Through the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Without my contacts, I am desperately blind. I mean desperately blind. And then with my contacts, I can see 2020. Which they say is perfect, but some of you are like, I'm 2015. No. Whatever with you. <clears throat> and isn't it good to know that now by faith in Christ, God the Father looks at me through the lenses of Christ's perfect righteousness? Not on the basis of what I have done, but on the basis of what Christ has done. Thus, I am declared perfectly righteous, not because I am. <laughs> if you could ask my wife, I'm far from that but because I have Christ's righteousness applied to me by grace and through faith. Thus, I need not walk around fearful that I am under the wrath of God for various things that I do because Jesus has already taken the wrath of God for me in my place and declared me innocent by grace and through faith. And he who began this good work in me will persevere me to the end. Thus, he will carry me to the end by grace. Thus, it is all from grace, through grace, for his glory alone. So, let's pray and let's thank him for his great kindness to us.